I think there's room for a lot of different kinds of data scientists. Exactly. And, and maybe that's the, one of the key points that we have grown from a quite one broad term and now more maturity means it's sort of branching out more, uh, more clearly. We have, yeah. we have talked about the analytics versus machine learning engineering. Right. It, it is different. And I know you have some ideas about, you know, recruitment and the good way and bad ways to do that. So right. Perhaps that would be a fun topic to have at yeah. some point soon. Sure. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, can you just quickly introduce yourself? Who is uh, Robert Luciani? Right. My name is Robert, and um, I have a bit of a multinational background. I was born in the U.S. I lived in Italy for a number of years, the United States for a number of years, and now I'm mostly Swedish. I've been here since 2000, so that's 20 years now. So um, more Swedish than anything else, I take it, I suppose. And um, I have a number of uh, interests uh, in addition to computers. I really like computers. Um because they feel like magic a little bit, I guess. And uh, I like Olympic weightlifting. Uh, really? I no, like uh, first-person shooters, like Quake. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like music Quake 3, a lot. Quake 2, which one? Quake, which? Quake 3, yeah, the competitive mm -hmm. arena ones. I like Quake 1, all of them, all of okay. them from the beginning, mm -hmm. so it's good. Yeah. And then music, of course. Yeah, and music is a big thing. I've played in a number of bands, signed at labels, and uh, been doing that for a long time. And uh, I guess the, the genres of music I like are the ones that are most pretentious, <laughs> so like jazz fusion and that kind of thing. But I like the energy of uh, heavy metal, so mm. I try to blend them. Mm. So you, it's because I, I, I know you more of a, as a heavy metal guy. Yeah. But you have a, more of a jazz fusion. Yeah, thing, I thing think going so. On now. I think the metal is the part that, that you hear the most because it's the loudest part. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of theory and music theory underneath there. Yeah. Cool. Mm. And um, so you're in a band right now? Are you sort of, are you No, right something? now I'm just doing solo project. I've yeah. been writing this album for many years now. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a passion project of mine. Yeah. Mm. And how do you, how do, you, do you sort of work on that, you know, alone on different instruments? We get friends in doing it's, different pieces. I mean, it's, it's super cool because uh, it was actually a Swedish band called Meshuga that sort of kicked it off by releasing a drum sample library that let people write drum parts, which before used to be cost prohibitive, basically. Now, anybody that has a small laptop, any gaming laptop can mm. get really, really good music quality at home, basically. Mm. Uh, so um, it's really lowered the threshold for how much it costs to get good good quality. And uh, since 2005, everybody basically is able to write everything at home and write all their own stuff. So that's a little bit what, you know, I, I was fortunate to be part of that wave from the early 2000s. And does this wave have a name? What, what, what's the sort of, is, that, is this a theme? Yeah, that, that particular brand of metal is typically referred to as gent. Gent. Yeah, because it sounds like yeah. At some point in the future, we'll introduce you to dance band, Swedish dance band music as well. Right. And, uh, yeah. Convert That's, you into that, perhaps. Yeah. That would be a good argument. Pros and cons of gent versus <laughs> uh, Swedish dance band. That would be certainly very fun. Uh, I, I remember at Spotify days. I think they. I am probably paraphrasing a lot or saying something wrong, but they said, or I think Donnelly X said at one point. Um, so Spotify is a tech company at core, mm. but with music in the heart. Right. Is that a good description of you, you would say? Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm often uh, humbled by the depth of all these fields. And um, I think being, being an artist is saying very much and very little at the same time. So I like, I like being uh, a musician first and foremost, more than being an expert at any one thing. 
We spoke a bit about art before um, and, and what the definition of art. Do you have a good definition of what do. do you think art is? Yeah, okay, a, I'd love a to philosophical hear definition and yeah. that <clears throat> art is what the art community agrees is art. So basically it's a gang of people that get together and say, yeah, we all like this stuff. Mm. And what I really like about it is that there's no threshold for who's allowed to be an artist or not. Uh, you can be a painter and make really you know, paintings that don't look like anything in specific, but it's okay for you to still be an artist, mm -hmm. just not a very popular one, or maybe not a very accurate one, but you're still an artist. Mm -hmm. But if, if you were to just say one day you, you focus a lot on working with art and another day right. you work a lot with some data science AI project. Yeah. Is there something that is fundamentally different about, you know, what the purpose is, how you work or, you know, In, instead of this kind of circular reference type of definition, which I have some problem with. Well, uh, it is. It is. It's a very self-serving type of narcissistic definition. The, yeah. the, the Everybody that likes it can join the club and now we're artists. Yes, exactly. But um, it used to be that art was, if you're an artisan, right? If you're, if you're making a sword, you're a smith, mm -hmm. and your art was banging that sword in such a way that it was, you know, spectacular when it was produced. Mm. And really what you'd done is laid your soul bare into the sword. This was the expression of your skill. It mm. was your art. And then came art that served its own purpose, like dance and that kind of other thing. Mm. But um, it's, it's all art. And I guess uh, one thing that links us humans to art is that a lot of art is uh, irrational. It's, it's part of our brains that is very uh, distinctly human. Mm -hmm. And there are some really neat things that link us to music and other kinds of art. So in particular with music, I think, I don't know if it's because speech is so important to humans, but I think there's a short circuit from our ears to our brain where we hear symmetries, especially well, because mm -hmm. birds are very good at hearing and, and, you know, understanding frequencies and everything, but they don't necessarily get triggered by a And even small children's uh, uh, understand that in a special way. So we probably have a, a a little bit of a bug where where our ears are connected a little bit too strongly to parts of our brain that that, that get stimulated by symmetry and sound, either mm -hmm. in harmony or beats and that kind of thing. So is that a bug or a feature? I mean, would you say that you have <laughs> some kind of help of being an artist in the way you are in the work you otherwise do for more professional purposes, so to speak? I, I think mostly just makes me a little bit too excited about uh, things that I find fascinating. And, and just to, to go a little bit deeper in that um, symmetry thing, mm -hmm. you know when you hear a, a beat or, or, or some, some harmonies or some melodies that just really speak to you, um, that's basically symmetry in the music piece, in, in, either in time or in frequency. Um, we don't get that excited about seeing rocks that are symmetric or other things. We do about faces and that some kind of thing, but mm. really it's about what kind of uh, sort of patterns that we get excited about uh, discovering. So there's something very special about sound compared to all the other stimulus that we get. Like if we rub our fingers across a surface that's, that has a regular pattern, we don't get as excited about that as we do about the, you know, the, the bass kick or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 
And uh, how did you get got into computers? So what's your computer story? Where, are, are you a hacker at some point in your life or you know where did you, how did that start the whole computer? I guess it started with video games mm-hmm. that you could play video games and uh, I felt they were so mysterious. <clears throat> I felt very unlucky when I was growing up that I had missed the internet revolution and the 80s and when you know the 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 big vac machines and everything. It felt like After that, it's all been done. Now it's just sort of incremental improvements. And uh, so, so when I was at university, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I guess born in the wrong time. And now I know that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And, and we are right in the middle of the machine learning sort of takeoff. So yeah. that's good. And there will cool. probably be similar. So, so you started like, wh- when do you get started to code? When was the first time you coded something? Uh, on my TI-82. Two, I think it was. I I, I made uh, role-playing games with Visual Basic. Cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how old are you then? Um, I don't know. I guess I was uh, I was pretty old. I was like 13 or 14. 13, 14. Yeah. Cool. Um, but I felt computers were mysterious. Like you, you saw a prompt and uh, there was something magic going on behind it. And when you send it commands, it would go into the void and then come back. And I was like, wh- how is it doing that? How is it? thinking basically and now we, we we've said oh that that's easy it's the advanced ai stuff that that's that's advanced we've sort of pushed the goalpost forward for yeah. what intelligence is but to me back then that was so mysterious and magic yeah. uh, and that's what i wanted and i felt that operating system hackers those were basically the wizards of programming so when i was younger i wanted to become an operating system designer oh so, yeah. I, so i started learning a lot about um that's why i studied computer science i wanted to learn about parallel processing and all, all the challenges that uh, OS designers had. And I, I learned a lot from that because they have to solve the general problem. They're not allowed to solve a specific problem. Like if they're writing a threading library, the threads have to perform well in all circumstances for a video game, for a database and for everything else. And uh, that's a lot harder than like when Hadoop came out and he was like, you can map reduce. Look, if you have a problem that you can, that's embarrassingly parallel, You just ask many people to, to, to solve each part of the problem. I'm like, but that's not a hard problem. The mm-hmm. hard problem is if you have one resource that everybody has to share and fight over. And so I didn't even get what Hadoop was good for. And obviously it's good for lots of stuff, but mm-hmm. I was you so much it. into the operating system thing that that was just the only thing I stared at. It's amazing how Hadoop um, can make something so embarrassingly parallelly Simple to do, extremely complicated. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of code for very little. Yeah, sure. And and, and and so, what's your what's your you know your journey into the industry, so to speak, or you know, yeah. uh, from studying and and what's that journey all about? I think uh, the biggest lie we're told in university is that you need to do a career, you need to make mm. a career, and the career is to uh, get a good title. And then get a better title. That's what the career is. And uh, you can cheat your way forward because if your title has the word manager in it or something, then it's better. And what they should have said is you need to focus on improving yourself. Get really good at something and invest in yourself. And if you're really good and you provide a lot of value to people, you you'll do very well for yourself. And it I'm still learning it now. Even now I'm thinking... Oh man, I should have just I should have just focused on doing what's right, what's good, what's interesting instead of think trying to be clever about that kind of stuff. So I went to university precisely because that's what you're supposed to do. And I was there for five years and I'm so bad at school and I didn't pass the tests or anything. I went to lots of courses and and, and did a lot of neat open source stuff, but 
Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't have gotten my first job if I hadn't been at university. So I guess that was a good thing. Maybe that, a, yeah, I mean, that, speaking about careers, I mean, I think you have a very interesting career. And you started off like a super big company and, and then moving into, you know, having your own consultancy and, and your mm. company and, and, and doing that. Um, can you start off, how did you get started at Microsoft? And Right. And Microsoft had a really nice trainee program. Yeah. Uh, those those programs are really good at many of these big companies because they're they're made to teach you a lot of the things that are required at big companies. Processes, I mean, running that or getting that many people to work in the same direction is super challenging. And it's not until you work at a huge company like that that you you're privy to all those uh, things. And when I went down to smaller companies, I, I missed a lot of the things that were mm. from Microsoft. But the reason, uh, so Microsoft is basically the dream job. Everybody mm. at university wanted to work at IBM, Google, Microsoft, and all these places. And um, micro I'm always going to have a soft spot for Microsoft because what it did for me and what mm. I learned. And I, I still think Apple is a bit prissy. I don't want to run, you know, I don't want to have a MacBook and that kind of thing. <laughs> Perfect. But, uh, this look at is this. Look one at of this. the best thing I love about this, Robert. You know? Okay, good. But, uh, um, yeah, and, and it's actually, it was, I was the BSD guy, BSD Unix guy at yeah. university. So a lot of people say, oh, you're such a trader starting at Microsoft. <laughs> I'm like, That's what, this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and back then it was right when Windows Vista was at the end of its life cycle. <laughs> it was the worst time to start at Microsoft. But uh, I learned that... Um, which part was it you worked at? Well, I was at Microsoft Sweden, which is a sales organization. So I was technical pre-sales. And I had mm -hmm. lots of great customers from the central bank to Ikea to everything. And uh, it was a real privilege to get to work with all of them. Um, but what I learned quite quickly was that, um, you know, all these big companies have company values and uh, uh, we're going to change the world. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a team of five people. It's a machine. And if you're not running in the same direction, you're going to get run over. And, and it's not nothing specific about Microsoft. It's just any big company like that. If you're not... If you're not headed in the same direction as them for a moment, you, it, you'll just get run over. And I resented that a lot. I took it very personally because I thought, you know, I thought we were all friends and we would just work together and stuff. But it's not. I mean, the, we, the company has one direction. And if it doesn't, if you're not really uh, headed in that direction right then, then it doesn't suit them. So I, I, I changed and I kept on going to smaller and smaller companies. And I started my own company after a while. And I don't think I can ever go back. Mm -hmm. um, But, but it's a weird thing because, like I said, I'll always have a soft spot for Microsoft and uh, I'm extremely grateful for what I learned during that time. So I think we've seen a lot of people, you know, taking this journey and, and I think there is good reasons to do so. But if you still were to give some advice to someone that is perhaps coming right out of university and thinking, you know, what should the first company be? How would you advise them to proceed? I would say if you... Um, <clears throat> you, the thing about a startup is uh, you're risking a lot. Yeah. Uh, if if you are older and you have a family that relies on you and that kind of thing, uh, it's not very easy to to be living off noodle money <laughs> for months. Mm. So uh, probably when you're out of university is the best time to do it. It's when you have the most energy. It's when you have the fewest commitments. That's the right time to do it. And I think to do what to do startups. To, yeah, to create a startup, and uh, it's not as bad as it seems. It's not as hard as it seems. Um, Do you think a union right out of university could create a startup and, and that would work well? Or that, that a what? A, a junior right out of university could start a startup and, and that would work well, you think? I think uh, if, um, 
if you're willing to accept that you need to get a lot of mentorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the reason it's working for me is precisely because I knew all the things from Microsoft uh, to be so, careful So you with. didn't take that journey. I mean, you no. started at the big company, yeah. you got the pre-training, yeah, you sure. got introduced to a lot of thinking that, you know, yeah, really experienced people had, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I knew the language that I needed to have with me in business meetings. Mm -hmm. I knew how to balance uh, uh, um, our liquidity at the company. I mm -hmm. knew all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was a little bit of cheating. But uh, I think if you're humble and you have mentorship, mm -hmm. you might be able to make that journey anyway. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes feel, and I certainly was the same when I came out of university, that I thought I knew the world and I was better than everyone and you mm -hmm. know, I, no one could ever you know, s tell me what to do. And, and then you actually start to learn more and I started my PhD and everything and I started to realize you know, I know nothing. Yeah. And, but it took quite some time. I still well, learn that today. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes, you know, is that good or bad when, you do, when you're doing a startup? Because I think doing yeah. the startup, I mean, like, it boils down to, of course, having something really concrete, contributing value that is good, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, and of course, if, if, we, if we are cynical, most startups don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, 90% but, plus but, or something. But of course, in the end now, if, if you look at the, you know, lean startup methodology by Eric Rice, I'm not sure if you've... It's uh, like this, one of the key success factors of, of, of a startup is basically how fast can you iterate on your minimum viable product mm -hmm. and then, you know, benchmark or, you know, measure if you're on the right track and then pivot or persevere and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think what is, if you, so sometimes it's a little bit like you're also hindered when you have been in, in the corporate world that you have almost like dogma with you, how things should work. Yeah. So that whole first principle, reinventing stuff, you know, it could be that you're fresh, having great idea, as long as you're also humble about mentorship, but also mm -hmm. about this is a journey, this is a learning curve. Yeah. So you just, so I mean like, so, uh, so the first startup, you know, the second startup, the third startup, well, that's your years five, six, seven, and eight in, in school of life. Yeah, for sure. So, and, and, and then the, the whole bottom line is the whole thing, I think with risk and family and, and mm -hmm. having the real, uh, really being able to put in 200 hours. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think that to, to what you were saying before about, um, knowing everything when you come out of university, uh, to clarify to people that might be thinking, well, it, maybe you didn't know everything, but I know everything. And the thing is, it's not that you're wrong when you come out of university. Let's say you have a great idea for a product. It's not that your idea is not great. It's just that there are a lot of unforeseen circumstances. There's there's motivations behind business decisions that that uh, might not be clear from the beginning. The point is, you're, you're extremely naive on why people buy products. Yes. Or yes. you know why people you know and how you sell. Yeah, so yeah. you think if it's good, it will sell. No. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. Are, exactly. There are, there, there are other topics. Yeah. It's like, not the best product. That it's wins. not the best product that wins. It's about how you manage risks or concerns. It's sure. about other things. Yeah. And this naivety will kill you in the beginning, of course. It's a large number of unknown unknowns, so to speak. Yes. And you don't even know, know the unknowns in, right. when you're a junior. Meta-unknowns. Exactly. So yeah. you start to learn, oh, shit, there are so yeah. many unknowns I don't know about. So, and, then, yeah. oh. and I think that's the point. If you, uh, It could be a great idea, but be humble. Yeah. Be hardworking. Be yeah. disciplined. Pivot. Yeah. Uh, if you think you know this shit and you, you're going to have pride in it's going to be my way or the highway, uh, you can forget it because you probably ha don't have it right the three or four first times. Here's a, a, a topic that I don't know if we should go too deep into, but it's um, is it important to make money? 
Yeah. Yeah, good, good one, good right? Yeah. Uh, so why do you start your own company actually? Well, I mean, nobody's making money nowadays, right? They're in the red for 10 plus years. And uh, um, some of the companies that, that we're looking with now that are, are viewed as extremely, you know, the paragons of success or, or even innovative, all that kind of stuff, they can be red for long with no green in sight in their budgets, you know, making a profit. Um, I don't know if there is, uh, that's a pretty recent phenomenon, is it not? I don't know what, if that, What if do you mean that been, no one is making money? I mean, there are lots of companies that make money, right? Sure, I mean, make money, but I mean being net positive over the course of the year. So You mean it, startups now? or Yeah, yeah. Or uh, well, some of these startups are pretty old now. They're like yeah. five, six years old, and they're still digging into, they're still not making uh, they're making money, but they're not making a profit at the mm -hmm. end of the year. Yeah. And um, and that might be part of the plan, but I think exactly. that's a new, a new. I think that's a new thing that now it's viewed as very okay to to have a, a really long runway. Whereas in the old days, a lot of people would say, "Well, you have to be profitable year one; otherwise, it's it's not a good no, thing." But I can relate. I, I I've actually been trying to follow up on these topics and 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 read, uh, you know. The, the unscientific way, googling and 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 following different uh, people's with opinions, and it's and it it seems like th there has been a, a shift, especially in the Silicon Valley mm. uh, mentality, that basically you have a business model and you and you sell and you get into the whole VC selling. Mm -hmm. So basically, the whole business model is actually geared towards acquiring capital versus acquiring customers to right. be, I mean, and, and then, and I've, and I've gone down and looked at it uh, and read about, about a couple of who sort of reflect on that. It's like, we are really, maybe this is not so healthy because we even, the way we are pushing stuff now mm. is making more effort towards the investors than rather trying to do, do good products or, and right. get customers. And I think that's the whole point that, that, that you know, you, you, mm. you're going for the investor route very early. I mean, I don't know if, if it makes sense, uh, if we can figure out exactly whether that's the right strategy or not. But I think a lot of companies now when they're want, they want to make a startup, right? You're at a university, you want to make a startup and you're going to either a VC company or an angel investor or something like that. And you're saying, my plan is to build a product. I'm going to go into a cave for mm. a year and then come out and the product's going to be ready and I'm going to be selling. Is that the right approach or should you try to, from the beginning, go out and sell and have a plan for earning money as soon as possible? Uh, and I think that runway that people say we need to be in the cave for three years because we're going to build a product that's so complicated. It takes us three mm -hmm. years to develop it. And, and then the money's going to come in five years or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I have the right answer, but I have to say <clears throat> it feels a lot better at night knowing that money's on the way in. Uh, it's going to be it's going to really hurt your stomach if 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 you're uh, if you're deep in the red uh, and yeah. you have people hanging over your shoulders. But, but I I'm very opinionated on this that I think this is quite an obvious answer to this that you kind of want to go the whole lean start philosophy, try your stuff out with a minimum effort to see if you're thinking right, because to think that you will have the perfect fit of your feature towards the customer base. You don't gonna know until you've tried to sell it mm -hmm. and someone bought it. So how fast can you get something that gives you concrete buying feedback yeah, yeah. is probably the most important. Because the three, I, I would find it extremely scary that someone says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on my own now for one year. Yeah. I'm not gonna talk to customers, and I, and then I'm gonna have it spot on." Yeah, that, that to me, oh, <laughs> come on. Yeah, that's Being my opinion. Yeah. yeah.
No, but it's also, you know, I've had this question so many times and I'm also a bit opinionated here and I'm trying to bite my lip in no, don't, and not, please don't. not speaking about this, but... Uh, um, <laughs> Tell your opinion on this. Ah, no, 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 but being in the red, as long as you scale, I think that's perfectly fine and even a good thing. Mm-hmm. The problem is really when you don't scale and still in the red. Right. Right? Sure. So scaling is more important than profit. Would you agree with that? <coughs> I mean, it, it, if it's part of your plan to turn it into profit at some point, that, that's the yeah. reason why you would scale. Exactly. You, you can obviously invest in yourself to grow bigger in the hopes of being bigger later and making even more money. I mean, if you make a small profit, I mean, why shouldn't you invest it in scaling more? Right, sure, sure. Right? That would yeah. be stupid in my yeah, view. But, but, right? but I guess the question then is, if you make a profit and reinvest it, yeah. or if you go out and ask for more money because the money you got True. ran out. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, either or, I mean, scaling is number one in but, but case, right? Not to challenge you, but to balance it, because I think that- You can was, challenge me as no, well, no, it's fine. I, I think you're right. <laughs> I, essentially, I think you're right to a degree. Because I think it has a lot to do with what your fundamental business model is all about. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if I take the, the traditional, how we defined the new disruptive, how we talked about digitalization uh, 2016, uh, we, we, sh- we talked about the Ubers and the Spotify's to become the platform, right? Mm. So here clearly in the end, the market will be run by three or four, or maybe only one platform. So here for sure, scale beats profit until you have that critical mass that you are the number one. I mean, like G, Jack Welch and G talked about either we are number one or number two, or we get out yeah. in, in each market, in however we define the market. Uh, but it, so it, I it think is a gambit, this is, this is, right? As no, long as you're in the red, you owe someone. Yeah, in yeah. A sense. And, and the longer you're there, the longer you're gambling and saying, this is going to pay off at some point. Yeah. And it's also about, you know, being innovative, I would say. Yeah. So if, you want to simply make money quickly, you just go for the mainstream and do what they want. Yeah. And then, ah, good, you have some you know, short-term money. But if you truly, truly want to disrupt something, you have to start at a scale where you will not make money and later scale into that. Yeah. Otherwise, it will be, I would say, strange, right? But I think, but, 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 but let's, let's take another type of business model. But now. let's ask Robert as yeah. well, you know, he. Please, sorry. <laughs> I, this was yeah. a good one. I, I, I don't think me. necessarily it's, it's um, this type of software that we're trying to develop now at Foxtrain is one where um, if, if we get, uh, if, if we get, um, if we start to grow a little bit, we could definitely reinvest that immediately so that we keep none of the money that we've made. Yeah. And um it, there is no rule book about what the right decision is to make. Uh, the only thing I know is what the investors expect mm-hmm. and uh, maybe uh, what kind of salary I want to have in the short term and, and uh, what the risks are in growing, in trying to grow. Because if I were to take all that money and reinvest it, um, I would be saying, okay, I'm willing to live like this for one more year and promise the investors that the money's going to come in one more year and it's going to be three times as big this time. It's like, you know, like with the stock market almost. And, uh, I guess in that sense, there's no easy way to say what's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that that scaling principle does apply to more things than just like uh, TikTok and stuff. Yes. You know, we're selling a pretty niche industrial uh, solution a- and it applies just as well in Japan as in Sweden. So, you know, if we want to start selling in Japan, that's going to require investments. And mm. so. 
And we haven't really mentioned um, Fox Rain in any way as well. So perhaps if you yeah. could give a quick introduction to what that is as well. Sure. What you do. So after uh, I said I started my own company and I was doing consulting work in data science for uh, almost five years. And uh, I really liked that a lot. And uh, what I felt was I wanted to um, build a product that I got to um, refine, keep, be proud of, and that kind of thing. So that's what Fox Rain does now. We build software that... Um, for the time being, is focused very much on uh, solving NP-hard problems. What is so, it? Mm, yeah. MP? NP. N-N, uh, Nicholas. Yeah, right, yeah. It's a, it's a type of problem that uh, becomes harder very quickly. It's the type of problem that is very easy to verify if you've solved it correctly, but uh, very hard to actually solve. A little bit like classical music. You can tell it's good, but it's actually hard to write. This is actually, you know, a favorite topic of mine as well. And I love the article you actually send in advance um, talking about the traveling salesman problem for this. Mm -hmm. so, so what is that? Let's start with the, what, what's the traveling salesman problem? The traveling salesman problem is uh, one that uh, Sweden is a little bit known for because it made an animation about 10 years ago where the goal is to visit every city in an area uh, in, in the, using the shortest path possible. So you start in one city, visit every city, trying to sell stuff, I guess. And then you come back to your hometown. And uh, obviously there is a shortest way to do that. And uh, calculating that shortest path is very difficult. And for every city you add, it becomes exponentially more difficult. So um, e even faster actually, but yeah, so not in polynomial time. And uh, so, you know, if you're up at 16 cities, which is not very many cities, it becomes essentially impossible to solve. So about 10 years ago, Sweden uh, had a, uh, some university in Sweden um, made a nice animation of visiting all the cities in Sweden. And, uh, and that took a supercomputer to calculate. And nowadays you can do it with less, but in real business, um, you tend to have constraints. People can't drive 24 hours a day. Trucks break down. Uh, there's snow. Uh, the distance between A and B is not the same as between B and A. You have tons of constraints. And so this problem really becomes difficult to solve. And one thing that I really loved about deep learning when, I, when many years ago I started seeing fun examples was people that were using it to approximate solutions to like Navier-Stokes equations and physics stuff. And these classic problems that are really hard to calculate correctly, the, the Navier-Stokes equations are essentially every point is affected by every other point now calculate every point. It's not, it's not <laughs> really a solution to anything. It's basically saying that to know uh, how every point is, you need to first calculate every other point. And it's, it, that's sort of how the traveling salesman problem is solved today in the vehicle routing program. You buy these commercial solvers from IBM and other places, and they basically, I mean, they, they try to be clever about it, but in rough terms, they're brute forcing it. They're trying every possible combination and it's just, you know, if you have some problem space that's the size of the universe and you cut it in half, it's still a big-ass space. It's, it's, yeah. You can't solve it. So the only thing you can do is tricks, like uh, branch and bound. You say, let's just assume that trucks that cross paths is a bad thing. And then you've sort of reduced the problem space. Except that's a really bad assumption because that's not true. And so you end up embedding all of these assumptions and you end up removing the optimal solution for yourself. Um, so anyway, when I when I saw those articles, I'm like, man, we should we should do something with deep learning where it comes up with a an almost optimal solution, 
and uh, and does it for something that is traditionally super hard to calculate exactly. Mm-hmm. Because usually if you come within one or 2% of the optimal solution, you're pretty good to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been in touch with a couple of companies that do this and you know they, they've dedicated clusters of machines running overnight to, to make uh, optimal uh, logistics uh, plans. And um, you know, if you want to do things like same day delivery and that kind of stuff, it would it would be sweet to to do it in one forward pass on a GPU instead. So ultimately, this is also about doing something, solving a problem a lot faster and cheaper. Yeah, if you I do think it smartly, there's two types of things that I think are compelling about AI. One is if you can do something that you're already doing a little bit more efficiently, and so that's nice. That's like a convenience. But the other thing is if you can do something so fast that you start thinking hmm can i build a service on this can i can i maybe offer a new product to somebody that wasn't possible before like same day delivery or you know package rerouting in real time i don't know something like that that's what i think is a, a so basically when you get to the next level of speed on this you can actually start thinking about well how does that if how do I, how i put that into my service yeah okay so here's another music analogy imagine you're trying to write a, a symphony like beethoven and uh, you have to write your score and then bring it to an orchestra and then they play it and then you hear it and then you're like yeah that was no good you have to go back and write it again that's basically what people are doing nowadays which is why only beethoven back then could do it because it took a genius basically to hear everything in, in his my, head in yeah his head. so only like the best data scientists now can just sort of intuit these mm. awesome things and then you know get it right on the first try so it's not so much like oh now i don't have to wait for it it just it changes everything when something is so fast that it's at your fingertips so basically what is the core of the of the of, of the idea that you're working on right now or that you that you want to explore with with products and services the core of the idea is that a lot of companies have processes mm-hmm. that stand to benefit from being optimized whether it's how they pack their warehouse how they send out their trucks even a hospital how they put people in line for the x-ray machine you don't want to have it empty you don't want to have a long line there you want to have just the right person at the right time at the x-ray machine so all you know the bigger the scale the more there is to benefit but all of those kinds of situations that's where we want to help out yeah so so you've been really trying to narrow out on on that particular type of problem yes and, and how, how how does that look like from a deep learning perspective what is what type of problem is it from a deep learning perspective right so here comes a cool thing that i uh i'm sure other people have thought about it but i was sort of spellbound when i discovered it I've always felt that graphs were very fun to work with. They're they're a fun data structure and there are neat algorithms for working with it. And it's also one of those problems, funny enough, that's very difficult to parallelize. All the algorithms for graphs are just, it's hard to split a graph in half and do the one half first. And um, so we were working with graphs when we were in telecom and uh, we were like, okay, how can we apply uh, AI here? And here's a fun intuition first. So convolutional networks, uh, are working on images and images are just graphs where every node always has eight neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. And eight, then it's six, or, okay. uh, isn't it? Uh, six and then two on the side. Yeah, true. Yeah. Eight. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's a graph. And then I'm like, okay, well we know convolutions work. And then funny enough, after a couple of years, graph convolutional networks yeah. started being a thing sure. and they work precisely for the same reason that they work well on images is because the locality thing applies just as well on graphs. And, mm-hmm. Graph neural networks work really well. So we started playing around with those and um, we wanted to try some simpler stuff first. And I discovered that uh, Word2Vec worked really well on graphs. What's this? 
So there's this uh, there's this method called word to vec, uh, an older language processing method that uh, you, um, you feed it a sequence of words and it guesses what the next word is basically. And I thought, well, that's sort of like a random walk on a graph. What if I feed it a set of nodes and I want to guess what the next logical step in the graph should be? And funny enough, word to vec was really good at that. It memorized the graph and it figured out what the smart tr walks around that graph are. And obviously it made an embedding in itself of the graph, the big graph into a tiny embedding in the network and it, it became really good at walking across the graph. And now, do we know any other models that are really good at handling sequences, <laughs> right? Oh, uh, now we get there, yeah? Yeah, so yeah. that's where transformers come into the picture. And funny enough, transformers are really good on graphs, uh, walking along graphs, uh, and so, there's a, a more advanced version of the uh, traveling salesman. Uh, because I think this is a super interesting uh, <laughs> yeah. discussion, of course. And, uh, you know, understanding and how to generalize sequences such as text into graphs is, yeah. is very interesting. But how do you really do that? How do you sequence basically a graph into something that you can then apply transformers or word to vec to? I don't think you sequence the graph as such. Uh, what happens is in the word to vec case, if you feed it a number of walks along the graph, it'll only make an embedding of of the parts of the graph of the walks that you've fed it. So basically you find a path. That's the yeah. sequence, right? Yeah. So, so you yeah. basically sample paths exactly. through the graph and that yeah. becomes sequences. In yes. Some way, right? And so you can't solve all kinds of problems or maybe you can. I haven't thought about it enough, but you know, uh, for the ConvNet, you can make sort of an autoencoder uh, style where you have one network that goes in. Let's say you want to solve the optimal uh, network flow problem. Mm. And so, so you have a network, uh, an energy network, let's yes, say, we, that I was thinking right? And, and one of the machines breaks down and you want to know how is the energy going to be rerouted? Is that going to uh, make back pressure? Is it going to break some component? That's uh, an NP hard problem to compute. You could have a, conv, uh, a graph convnet that is like an autoencoder and spits out a, a more optimal network flow or perhaps a predicted network flow or something else like that. But that's not so much a sequence problem. A sequence problem, the kinds that we've been looking at are uh, if, if uh, in the case of telco, if a user is traveling along the highway, what is the most logical set of bounces along the towers? Because it's, that's very stochastic. Like you think you would connect to the best tower, but, but you don't. And uh, so we wanted to make models that would guess what's the next tower that the person would probably connect to. And... Uh, the fun thing is, what we've discovered is transformers can learn a lot more about the logic of the jumps uh, between, between the sequences. So, for example, in the traveling salesman, the most optimal path that the traveling salesman would take is not necessarily a greedy approach. You know, taking the first, the shortest path, and then the next shortest path. It might be something... Uh, uh, that looks less optimal, like you start with the node that's furthest away because the ones afterwards are shorter or something. And with transformers, you have a tension. So the transformer will look at, at, at all the sequences it can take and it'll say, I, I see that that's where I should be starting. And it can be really clever about uh, things that are out of order and that kind of thing. And for people that don't know the, the huge difference between where to vec kind of models and, and transformers, how would you describe transformers compared to where to vec? Uh, it, I think for me, the, the, the two things that are interesting are the attention mechanisms that, uh, transformers have. So basically you can think of an attention mechanism as a soft max that, uh, 
puts the focus on what part of the problem that the the machine should be focusing on next. And this could be a sequence of words, or it could be a sequence of nodes in some path. In yes. Graph. One thing right. that I haven't really wrapped my head around yet is I saw a paper quite recently that showed this working very effectively on images as well. That yeah. you cut up the image and it and it uh, outperforms ConvNet. Uh, that boggles my mind a little bit, but. Um, yeah, so the attention... Sequence of pixels row by row, basically, right? I think they tried using convolutions to bake down each uh, quadrant in a picture um, into single vectors, but they found that they didn't even have to do that because mm. the attention mechanism sort of figured that all out for yeah, it. Exactly. And uh, so you have an attention mechanism, and what it does is... Um, I think the nicest analogy is, is uh, in language translation. I, I was... Uh, fortunate when I was at Tele2, I was working on a, on a uh, what I thought was a pretty groundbreaking project, real-time translation of voice while you were on the call. We were going to connect mm -hmm. it to the network so you would dial, you know, star blah blah, and it would translate you from Swedish to uh, English or whatever in real time. And we were going to use Microsoft's API. And uh, the fun part is when you're speaking in German, the translator has to wait until uh, uh, has to place the verb at the end. So there's this huge delay when you're trying to speak German. And you'll notice that when you're in Skype or Teams and you turn on the auto subtitles, the German thing will wait and wait and wait and boom, the verb comes at the end. Mm. Attention mechanisms let you sort of look at what's relevant in the sentence, you know, and separate the, the order of things. So whereas old methods like uh, recurrent neural networks would have to remember things for a really, really long time, uh, a transformer can look at everything at once and just look at what's important in the moment instead of bringing along with it th this really long set of information. Mm. Um, and that's probably why it works better, I think. Mm. Yep. And what was but the difference to Wurtovic? Wordtovec is just an, is not a is Wordtovec even recurrent? I don't know. No, no, it's yeah, not. It's, it's not. just it's a pair. Usually, the right? skip gram is just yeah. a pair of yeah. nodes connected. So, <clears throat> so predicting the next word you can think of or a yeah. context of a word. Yeah. Um, so it's extremely much more simplistic. It's like a yeah. single neural network yeah. compared to like or uh, millions of parameters in yeah. in the original transformers. So, and so this is interesting. Anymore. So this is interesting now. You know. I, I guess you have started to talk to people in industry around that. And, and yeah. do they fundamentally understand the difference? This is a leading question. But I, do you have any anecdotes for us on like, how do you, how do people experience you or this understanding that there is a different route down to this problem? Well, it should be huge in the transport industry, in the logistics industry. to start Sure. About I mean, even small logistics companies are, are delivering tens of thousands of packages per day that they need to optimize. So they all stand to benefit. But the really big ones in this country here, you know, they have a turnaround in the tens of billions of crowns. So any one or two small percent improvement, we're talking about hundreds of millions. Uh, in potential savings. I think that's a pretty compelling AI argument if we're talking about business cases. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak about this topic. And, um, you know, it's not like people haven't thought about this before. And you're very safe buying off-the-shelf products. But when it comes to it and you need to explain what the difference is and that it's an ocean of difference, it's very hard to quantify it. I've had a lot of problems where I run uh, the neural network and it goes boom, and it's mm. done, right? 300 milliseconds. And I'm like, did you catch that? Yeah, no. Oh, oh yeah, it was pretty uneventful. Mm. I don't know what else to say, but how, how long does it take you guys to run? And it's, well, yeah, we, we run it on a cluster of five machines for, for all night. Mm. It's like, yeah, so um, is this useful? And, and they're like, 
I don't know. Um, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we have this other use case and then it sort of dies there. Yeah, I think uh, what we've found, and this applies to everything else, you need to have pie charts and dashboards and, and dots and moving stuff for it to work. Uh, as a sales pitch. As a sales pitch. The first <laughs> gigs we did at my old company, we did this really cool stuff with uh, Cloudera and uh, we connected it to Power BI. And, and connected it to Cortana. So you could say, hey, Cortana, how many units have I sold? And it would, and it would get it all the way back. So I was Cortana really, is the voice assistant. Basically. Right, the voice assistant in mm -hmm. Microsoft. And I was really proud of that whole thing. But the only thing that really stuck from that meeting was the, was the voice activation. <laughs> and it's the same thing here where it, it's really tough to explain why, uh, to big companies, why this is useful. To startups, it's different. So these little companies that live and die by the margins, they will take any small advantage they can. So that's where we've made more inroads than with the big traditional companies, where I think they, there's more, more to gain. The real opportunities yeah. there, but yeah. is it a simple, fast and happy? Um, yeah. What, I, what's, or is it mm, uneducated no, or is it too hard? I mean, like I, the big company always to have respect. When you come with change, it's painful for them like hell to change or to adopt and put things in production. I think, um, at a startup, you can go speak to a CTO and the CTO will be both the person that understands the full tech stack, has a 20% stake in the company and answers to the board of directors and has a time and, you know, has everything in one place. And you can say, I can do it in this time. It's this valuable. And you can have one conversation with one person that understands everything. At a big company, you have the CEO that reports to the board and is only really interested in making sure that they get their their uh, uh, their money, uh, what, what do you call it, the um, uh, yearly... Year-on-year year growth kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. Not, necess not necessarily uh, uh, reducing operational costs in the moment. They, they want to get their, um, their, their dividends, stock oh. dividends. want to make oh, sure yeah. that the dividends are good this year. Yeah. So maybe even the CEO that answers to the stockholders might not necessarily be interested in making operations better. So you end up having like five people that you have to talk to. The CTO that understands the tech, somebody that's responsible for, for operations, somebody that's responsible for the profitability of the company. So obviously that's a harder sell and conversation than, than the startups. Before we move away from the paper that you submitted, and I think it's a fun topic that we really didn't dig, uh, dig deep into uh, sufficiently. So perhaps one question is basically, what's the difference difference between taking the approach that the paper takes and trying to find an approximate solution to TSP mm. compared to using machine learning or deep learning for that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the paper and the, the mathematicians want to find an exact solution to the traveling salesman problem. Yeah. And there is a provable bound to how much time it can take in the worst case. Um, and it doesn't even found in this case, I guess, the optimal one. It's right. just some kind of close to the optimal one that it can guarantee to find, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, deep learning models are not guaranteed to find anything special. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can sort of uh, run it many times and say most of the times it looks like it finds a good solution. And that's the same with all these physics uh, uh, approximators and everything else. Um, there are many heuristic methods already algorithmic heuristic methods uh, for finding pretty good solutions to the traveling salesman problem. Uh, methods like uh, 
ant colony optimization, genetic algorithms, uh, simulated annealing, which is an inside joke because it sounds so advanced. <laughs> uh, particle swarm optimization, all these methods uh, are like uh, gradient descent, I guess, that, mm. that exists in machine learning. And, and they'll find a pretty good solution. Um, the transformer, though, tends to beat those by quite a lot. It's both a lot faster and gets a better solution. But it doesn't find the optimal solution ever, basically. Oh, probably not. But, but still in the approach of what they take in the paper, trying to basically define an algorithm from a manual coding point of view almost, or a mathematical mm. point of view, compared to just throwing data to it and yeah. automating, I guess. Or, or would you say that that's basically the machine learning approach in trying to use data instead of manually coding it in some way? Or yeah. Would that be a good way to describe it? Or how would you describe the difference of what the of paper does yeah. and a transformer would do to try to solve the... Yeah, the, TSP problem. All, all sort of complexity theory is in quantifying what each step of an algorithm does uh, so that you can set a bound on um, what the worst runtime is. Mm. So you, it's really probabilistic and you can set, uh, you, can, you can give guarantees on how bad or good the solution uh, from this is mm. compared to the transformer method, which is very much reliant on the data that you give it. Coincidentally, I think the secret sauce that we have in how we've implemented the transformer is that. Uh, so, you, by the way, you, you have uh, like a prototype of using okay. transformers yeah. for no, TSP? Good. For sure. Oh, no, for, for vehicle routing. So, TSP is just one yeah. person. And then there's the constrained vehicle routing problem, which is many trucks with many constraints, time mm. windows for deliveries, how, how much packages you can fit in it. And mm. uh, yeah, we've made. Uh, We've made uh, working prototypes that are very performant, very good. And what we're hoping to do this fall is sort of verify that it's useful. Mm. I think a lot of the thing we've been speaking to companies that say, well, our biggest problem is that we only have two loading bays and there's always a queue. Mm. So, you know, imagine we save each truck 15 minutes uh, every hour and then they come back to the loading bay and they're in line for two hours. Mm. So we haven't saved anything. So the point now is to verify uh, that, that this really does save time for, for real so, so just to understand, uh, how did you actually build this transformer-based kind of route optimization problem? Did you collect data in the beginning somehow? No. Or, well, or yeah, I'm not going to give away too much of the secret, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, the, the, the um, all, okay, I can say all graphs are the same, really. Mm. So you don't need data from a specific graph. Mm, okay. So, so the traveling salesman problem is is generic enough that uh, you can take data uh, like uh, road, uh, you know, how much traffic there is and other stuff, and that's useful. But the route finding mm. intelligence is general purpose. Mm. So, for that, you can use other learning approaches than training on data. So, it's not a supervised approach that we've used. Uh, okay. And so it's a self-supervised somehow that you basically predict the next step in the graph somehow? Or yes, what? yes. Yeah, okay. Super cool. You're going to milk this one yes, out? Yes, <laughs> I will <have to>. yeah. <laughs> Call to me is always a self-supervised is the way to go. We're going to make it all open source and, and it's all in Julia, so ha. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll wait until I see that. But yeah. okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So, so but, but before we close that discussion, I think yeah, you know, a lot of people don't understand really the difference between using machine learning or deep learning compared to like trying to manually program something. Yeah. And uh, it, it would be fun. Okay, let, let me make a statement and see if you agree with it. Mm. 
So uh, one, it's super hard to manually code and find it like an optimal algorithm for doing whatever, including solving TSP or something else. Yeah. And then you can try to mathematically find some kind of bounds and do some guarantees on it mm. that can be useful. But usually it's kind of worst case analysis optimization that doesn't really speak about the real world and the average case. Right analysis and the yeah. results. So in rea reality, perhaps you don't really need or have that much use for the worst case analysis that many of these papers focus for on, sure. right? Yeah. And then the question becomes, okay, and given that if we were instead to care about like the average case analysis and the performance of that, mm. then we need to find an algorithm that works really well for that. And then we can try to manually code it or we can throw data at the problem and mm. use some kind of model yeah. like Wurtevec or transformers. And that basically, would you say it's basically like automating, building the solution to find the route somehow? Or Yes. Well, so just uh, with regards to the bounds of expert systems, if yeah. you call them that, uh, that was something that bugged me a lot when we were, uh, when I was working on operating systems. You would be uh, making a memory allocator and you had a choice. Either you could optimize for the worst case scenario and remove the, the latencies, yeah. or you could optimize for the type of memory workloads that people tend to use. Yeah. and and you might get these tail latencies that were really long, but on average, you would just be performing really well. And there is no solution for, or, you know, one algorithm is good at one thing and another one is good at another thing. And it really bugged me that all the focus tends to be on the worst case. Yeah. Especially uh, in academia, right? Or yes, it's always oh, oh something. Yes. But, you know, 99% of the time, it's something else. Yeah. And, um, and I like that ab about deep learning and, and training on data or training on patterns because uh, um, it's it's pretty realistic. And I think uh, the uh, we don't always know mm. what contributes to to the output as much as we think we know. And I, I trust the data. Yeah. C can you share some kind of, if you have some initial like uh, benchmark results comparing like word to vec to transformer model in terms of performance? Oh, I mean, word to vec was, was basically struggling to to do Dijkstra's algorithm. Mm. So it could find the shortest path sometimes, mm. but, it, but it would never be able to do this. Uh, I mean, we have a transformer that does the constrained vehicle routing problem in one forward pass and gets to within 2% of optimal. Oh. I mean, and it wasn't, it trains in like a day. Oh, really? Uh, on, on a big workstation. And that's we like have, a smaller version of a transformer? or is Yeah, it? yeah, it's just a small transformer, but it trains, I mean, okay, so we have these nice machines from HP that have like 90 gigs of GPU RAM, but I mean, mm. this is stuff that a company can buy. Mm. Uh, it's it's not the GPT-3 10 million times. No, 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 <laughs> not quite there yet, <laughs> no. Mm. Oh, I'm biting my tongue again. <laughs> so we, so, but, so uh, the joke is, is, isn't this a GPT-3 problem we can fix? It, it could be. Maybe I need to outsource it to OpenAI or something, yeah. <laughs> We, but uh, to be uh, frank and not make people think that this is actually true, then of no. course your fine-tuned version of a transformer would outperform GPT-3 if you try to throw it anything in a I mean, yeah, zero-shot learning setting. Yeah. By far, well, this, this is thing is made only to solve this yes. problem, and it's very tiny, and it's tiny because we know exactly what it's going to work with. Yeah. And and yeah, it's not. But comparable. but this conversation we also had a little bit like uh, very very interesting on about how to be successful in understanding. Um, where to go with new products and toolings. And I think Luca said it, you know, you know, what, what's the opportunity for Europe? Mm. As one of our guests here, Luca from Peltoria, right? Yeah. And, and we talked about this, oh, well, it's in the tooling. And then, okay, well, what type of tooling are we talking about then? And then we're joking about the GPT-3, but, but it comes down to, if you figure out, you know, that we want to be 
world dominant, mm. but in a quite concrete niche or a quite concrete algorithm, that seems to be a quite not a bad idea because all of a sudden you can now come back to the whole idea that how do you do something with AI yeah. that is kind of cost efficient and simple and, and can even be where the complexity in the end, if it's one dimensional problem, you can kind of hide that complexity in the end quite nicely. Think product, mm -hmm. which if you do these two broad stuff, it's just going to be. So I, I think this is yeah. cool. I think this is a, almost like a concrete example of what we're talking about. The technology, yeah. we're using transformer approaches. But here we see now very concrete, very like this. And you just need some web developers to make some nice UIs. That's what it. I'm saying. That's that's. <laughs> I, I need to learn some JavaScript. I've been I, I, thought, off I thought that out. <laughs> do some React and then you're set to go. Do some right? React. That's yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm trying to milk you for the details of this model, but uh, I can see you shouldn't do that uh, publicly. No, but, no, uh, but the but, thing uh, the thing that I think is really fun is the following. I think, um, I don't know if it's something about the Netherlands and the universities there, but all the clever uses of machine learning that, that use them in ways that others haven't used them come from there. Oh, yeah. I don't know what they're doing over there. But Which university? I know some people. I, I, I don't know, but I okay. mean, I, I have some personal friends that come from there, and then yeah. all the papers that I think are cool come from there. So I, the Netherlands, I guess they're a good place, but... Perhaps they are cre creative in, for, yeah, for they, other they, reasons. They are, they are well. creative for other reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, if we're going to go just uh, touch on the on the Europe subject for a moment... Maybe we mm -hmm. should park... If we close this, we go here now. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of think we've... Interesting stuff, yeah. But let's go yeah. to the next theme. Well, this is a good segue because you were asking about, you know, what, why this particular architecture and how does it work and stuff. And <clears throat> I'm a little bit proud of it because I don't know if it's unique or anything. I mean, a, a lot. Will of you stuff, publish about it, or you think, or will I, well, you keep? No, keep no, it we're, we're going to put it all out there. I, I just yeah. we wanted to, we want to. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty experimental for us. We're yeah, we're yeah. learning as we're building the ship as we're sailing it. Yeah. And uh, I think the thing is. Um, I've made a couple of talks at conferences about uh, uh, talking about a, um, deep learning by way of analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to understand uh, how optimizers work, it, it helps to think in terms of geometry and that kind of thing. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, analogies that you can make to make sort of conceptual leaps that uh, allow you to be creative and come up with new use cases. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and and you mean basically optimizes in terms of understanding like the loss landscape. And for example, yeah, yeah. yeah right? that, that was something I, I know I mean. you have done some really beautiful visualizations there as, as well. In, yeah, and I've always imagined the, the spaceship going around the lost yes. landscape and, and thinking, okay, well, things are different in 4D, so a, a, a valley is going to be really deep in 4D and so on. But it helps yeah. to have that sort of uh, analogy when you're going to make intuitions. So, you know, it's not immediately evident when people talk about... Uh, transformers that they apply to um, sequences of anything like traversing mm. a graph. And I just think that it's neat to uh, encourage students to think um, uh, to think of, of novel ways of implementing uh, these tools. Mm. So I guess that's what they're doing in the Netherlands. Mm. And so I'm thinking now if we segue into what Europe should be doing to promote AI and to get ahead. Yes. I, I almost think it has to start at the universities more than mm, in the companies. Interesting. Why, why is that, do you think? So I feel like a lot of the people that come out of universities from the machine learning program have almost done like one or two courses in Keras or something mm. like that. 
And that's the extent of the, the, the hacking. Mm-hmm. Whereas these PhD kids from the Netherlands are just doing these really bizarre experiments with, with architectures that, that, you know, maybe I can have, um, like the, well, the neural computing machine wasn't, wasn't from there, but just why would you even come up with such a thing to begin with? Mm. Well, uh, and skip connections and all that kind of stuff. Like who comes up with that stuff? That's the kind of thing that I think people need to be thinking about to be able to come up with novel use cases for AI, because right now everybody's just looking at pictures and text mm. and that's the end of it and you can use it for anything obviously mm-hmm. and i know you love kiras from the video that you right it's so <laughs> what is kiras for there for everyone what is kiras? kiras is is a tool that you know under normal circumstances it would take you 90 lines of code to write something clever and kiras makes it so you only have to write it in 10 lines of code yeah and how does that fit in in, in the, all the other coding Languages, we, we maybe we keep that a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, so I, that, no, I, the only reason I mentioned Keras is because uh, to me, Keras is very much about getting stuff done. Yes. But at university, the, your job is not to get stuff done. It's to explore, you know, the knowledge landscape. But, but wouldn't you say that the mix though, I mean, if you have great engineering skills and can actually build and test and, you know, do proper experiments, that's mm-hmm. a huge benefit as well to be able to be creative in some For way. sure. But that's why I use Julia instead of C. If Oof, I had to program in C all the time, <laughs> I would never get anything done. I, so, so let's <laughs> explore the Europe place because I really mm-hmm. want to go into the, yeah. the language store. Yeah. Here. We have another... You're the second Julia fan we have had uh, okay, yeah. on, on, on the show, but let's let's continue with Europe because yeah. mm. so so the theory here is a little bit like how do we get Europe back on track? Right? Yeah. And you you yeah. you are now pushing a little bit like okay, let's really think about academia yeah. role in this. Yes, uh, whether we do other stuff, I think this is still valid that we need to be much smarter of what we do in academia. Yeah. So what's the re- what's this recipe? What's the Amsterdam way? Oh, the Amsterdam ways is, is going to be tough, but I think. Um, it, the Amsterdam way is probably to um, have machine learning cor- uh, specializations that are that let you work on the machine learning part for a much longer part of the time. So I feel like the machine learning specializations that exist today are basically computer science with two or three elective courses in machine learning. Whereas I feel like it's a very hands-on topic like architecture or anything else that you where you really need to spend quite a lot of time trying ideas uh, and that kind of thing, and then I think that um, you want more, cr- you want more craftsmanship, hardcore machine learning craftsmanship as part of the curricula. Yeah, uh, spending more time with learning different languages and doing the engineering stuff. To be fair, I mean the 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 Netherlands uh, papers that I see are very uh, technical and mathematical, so they're, they're not just hack and slashing. They know what they're doing. They they uh, rationalize all the choices that they make, and but. And even if they don't, you know that they know what they're doing because the intuition it would have required to make that logical leap and come up with that stuff, you need to know that that's a, a reasonable assumption to make. Let's uh, bring in one of the favorite topics, first principles, right? Yes. So you need to know the first principles to be able to reason and come up with the creative ideas. Yes, yes, right? yes, exactly. Yes, that's true. So yeah. you need so, to really master something. You really need to be able to put, give it apart yeah. and rebuild it in another way or use it for another thing. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, well, here's a little rant from me, because uh, it's, it's fun, tongue-in-cheek, guys. Um, it's, uh, you know, you have people that have studied statistics, and then they start coming and, and they need to implement it in, in distributed systems. And there are computer science facets of implementing algorithms in distributed methods that 
sort of throw a wrench into the stuff that you've learned at university. So if you're going to calculate the variance of a data set uh, distributed, you need to take into consideration numeric stability and, uh, and other things that you wouldn't have to take into consideration when you're just calculating it on one machine. And that's very much in the domain of computer science. And you might never come across it unless you've been forced to learn those algorithms either in courses or tried the algorithm yourself and found that you've got negative values when you shouldn't mm. be and that kind of thing. Um, so, so what are we saying now? Like, so wh wh where is, where should academia go to be even more relevant? And, and we are not talking about the t PhD stuff now, or are we, is this PhD stuff? Or no, is it, no. Or is it basically the master, the master degree, like just churning out yes. students, I right? feel like the master's degrees here have not gone deep enough. They need to commit completely to having like an AI So you're skimming the surface on too many broad yeah. things. So yeah. they should be more, okay, I really want to become a machine learning engineer. Yes. Let's go that way. Yeah. Okay. And then there needs to be a tight connection with the industry. Uh, I really yeah. think that the startup scene and the connection with the industry and all that kind of thing is super important as well. So just thinking about that and, and thinking about Europe versus US or China, and uh, you can think about different um, investments we can make from mm. EU commission or from Swedish government or whatnot. And um, we can choose to spend a lot of money in improving academia, or we can choose to spend a lot of money in investing in companies that want to be more innovative or doing more AI research or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then we can think about how it works in, in US, et cetera. Where do you think, if you were to recommend like EU commissioner to, to right. spend some money, where to what, invest? Where, where should they, you know, where would they have the biggest gains, so to speak? Man, I, I, this uh, it's very tough to be political like that. And, and the only th reason I'm hesitant is because startups is not for everyone, mm. uh, because it requires a bit of a, a tenacity um, that, that it's just does not suited so, for So we said three different ways. One could be like academia, make it yeah. more relevant, make your use of later techniques, both in like AI and other like mm. data and computer science, what, whatnot. And, and also it could be like more enterprise type of companies that needs to be more innovative and, and use these techniques and more quickly, you know, adapt to the current situation. And then it could be startups. Yeah. And, and having a better startup scene, which I think Sweden actually has a really good one. Compared I think to, so too. Yeah. Right? Sweden is really good about that. And, uh, surprisingly good about allowing, giving people opportunity without too many negative repercussions. Mm. Uh, uh, it's very easy to start a company in Sweden. Like mm. you can start a company really fast, very hard to, to end the company, <laughs> but that's another question. <coughs> but uh, I think um, uh, if I were to pick between yeah. investing in big companies and investing in startups, startups. it would definitely be startups. Yeah. Yeah, Why is that? Because um, they can take bigger gambles. And the kind and make uh, uh, investments in the kind of innovation that is is disruptive. It's not fair to expect a big company to. I mean, take take some of the uh, the the logging companies in Sweden that that handle forests and that kind of thing. They have a very solid uh, way of doing things that they've been doing for for decades, centuries, maybe even some of them. And mm. uh, it's unreasonable to expect that they're going to change and digitalize everything. Yeah, but but it's a quite interesting question. You know, theoretically, EU Commission has uh, one trillion or mm. you know, whatever, mm. one hundred billion. Yeah, how do we invest them? You know, use roughly. Is it you know fifty percent to academia, twenty five percent to 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 big and startup, or is well, it one hundred percent? Just throw there are easy questions here for you to to answer. And yes, yeah. I know. One percent startup. I'll give you the answer right now. Right? <laughs> one percent startup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I think um, one way that companies would like to work 
is uh, it ties back to what we were talking about before, whether you should go into a cave and code for a yep, year and then come exactly. back. Yes. That, I don't think that that's the right way to do it. You said you need to validate that uh, something is good with a company. But if you do that, you tend to give away the value of your company, which is why people would prefer to go into a cave and then come out and then take that gamble. Wouldn't it be nice if you could keep your company but still have it verified somewhere else? So maybe the EU could sort of fund that cooperation uh, so that um, a startup could uh, develop something that's targeted at uh, retail, mm. but uh, instead of uh, IKEA or H and M buying that startup, uh, the they could just receive funding from the EU and get it developed together with uh, IKEA or H and M or IKEA or something like that. So basically, investments to have startups helping enterprises in some way. Yes. Or, so or let's say that IKEA were to vouch for us and say, we're gonna develop this together with Fox Rain to yeah. optimize our warehouses. Yep. Uh, and, and under normal circumstances, uh, either uh, we would, uh, you know, if we were to do a joint venture, we would be giving away part of the company. Yep. And maybe we don't wanna do that. And so we say, oh, we're, we're gonna stay at home and code it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe the EU could make it so that they could fund that work. So we could work for IKEA or H&M mm -hmm. or whoever, uh, but without having to worry about giving away all of the company in the meantime, if if you know you're a fresh yeah, startup, yeah. so a fresh startup out of university gets to keep the company, gets to get it verified already at stage one, and gets mm. to develop at the same but, time. But actually, this is yeah, this is really a good point. I, I think, think this is fantastic because if you think about that, how we have a welfare system in Sweden and how that is geared to a certain type of money, so we're giving money away in different ways, and we're spending. Uh, a lot of m money, which is more like, um, you know, for people out of jobs or startups, you know, so, so the money is there. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like, how can we make it more simple to apply for this money? And it has a different flavor to it. It has this mentorship. Yeah. It has connection. Yeah. So, so maybe we are talking about the different style of Arbetsförmedlingen. Yeah. So what's the Arbetsförmedlingen for, for startups? For startups. Yeah, yeah, that's a, and, that's and a hardcore, a what, what's, what's, what's the problem with this? Mm. It's just thinking first principle, what is this problem all about? And deconstructing it and seeing what the startup scene needs and then, then create the startup. It's a very funny Ar way of putting it, Arbetsförmedlingen for, for startups. startups. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's move out of the EU discussions. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been forced to, to have a lot of yeah discussions there recently, so yeah, it's not always the most fun thing to, to speak about. Something more fun to speak about is programming languages and how you right. become you know efficient in build, building systems where you can do data science in different yeah. ways. And um, I know uh, you have some um, passion and uh, affiliations have some favorites. to <laughs> a couple of favorites. Yeah, we have a couple of favorites at the table. Which one is your favorite? Oof. Um, you live in Python, we know that. No, I mean... You don't? Yes, <laughs> but it's not by choice, but it's by right. like necessity. By, yeah, yeah by sure. for the company. Uh, it's, so I'm certainly not fond of you know, the syntax and whatnot. But anyway, uh, it's basically the go-to and certainly the number, number one language in yeah, the world today, that. even yeah. more than Java or whatnot. Yeah. And uh, why do you think that is, if, if you were to speak about Python to start with, and why it's the, the data science go-to language right now? Because it's easy for noobs to program with. Hmm? Yeah. Why is it simple? Just because all the libraries? Because it's libraries? duct typed. It's, uh, it doesn't have, <clears throat> it just has a very simple syntax, all that kind of thing. You don't have to worry about very much. 
Mm. Um, and the main problems with Python is what you would say? The main problems with Python, if, if we speak in very general terms, is that the syntax is so permissive that it doesn't allow the language to make any smart decisions for you. So it has to figure out everything right at the last second, which means it becomes very slow. Mm. Another thing is that the syntax is not uh, is is simple to learn, but doesn't necessarily lend itself well to expressing mathematical concepts. Um, so if you, you know, in some languages, you can write an equation almost the way it looks like on a math paper. Yeah. Whereas in Python, you're something dot obj dot function, and then mm. you put the, it doesn't look very nice. So I'd say the two worst parts about Python are- He's studying linguistics right. uh, at university. So he, but, but he, he also expressed it. For him, per um, Python, I do not get it. It's like learning a new language. I cannot get Russian into my head. I can't get Python into my head. Yeah. And he said, Julia, I get it. So he thinks Julia now is a lot simpler. You know, for him, that was, right. that made sense. Yeah. But maybe also because he's a mathematician uh, coming that way into it. Again. I it don't could know. be. I think Julia is super easy to, uh, the syntax is super easy. My background is mainly C and a bit of assembly. And that was from operating systems. And the thing with operating systems is <clears throat> it's very seldom you write large pieces of code on your own. There's a very big, well-established code base that's very optimized already, and you go in and you maybe change something, or you, you rewrite a function or something like that. It's very seldom that you come with a new memory allocator that's 10,000 lines of code or something like that. And So, so, so see you using libraries. And, yes. yes. As and, well, yeah. And the thing I liked about C was that it mirrored how the machine works. Uh, things, you know, despite, I resented it when I came to university mm -hmm. that everybody started off with Haskell. And the funny thing was that it, for, there were many kids from high school that knew how to program, including myself, and Haskell was so different that everybody was back at, at ground zero. So even the experts, they were like, oh my God, how, how do I express that as a Lambda function? I have no idea. How do you express Dijkstra's algorithm as a function? Mm -hmm. it, who knows? And, uh, and, but the teachers were like, this is the epi epitome of beauty. Uh, you think in parallel, but why shouldn't we program in parallel? And uh, Theorists. I, I couldn't, um, I don't know, I think I'm a, bit, time. I'm a bit contrarian. So that's why I was like, well, maybe it's not that way. <laughs> <clears throat> and I refused to learn Java and all these other languages. And I remember at that time, there was this one guy who was like, Python, Python is good. It's duck type. If it looks like a, a, a floating point value, it is. And I'm like, is it float 32 or float 64 or a decimal <laughs> or a big or a complex number? It's like, it doesn't matter. It's good, bro. <laughs> it works in Python. All right, sure. But then Julia came along for me and it felt like it was still the machine, like C, but I, I didn't have to program that way if I didn't want to. So suddenly I could be 20 times more efficient without giving up that control that I felt like I had with C. And for a lot of people that are at least somewhat knowledgeable about Python, how would you describe Julia to them? I, uh, so Julia has a number of pretty nice features. It, it has introspection, it has multiple dispatch, it's jitted. So you guys might be familiar Jits with number. Mean like, uh, yeah, just compiled in time just in time. Yeah, and you guys might know that from Numba or some PyPy or some stuff like that. Java perhaps. Right, and the, the thing is, uh, well, Java can be very fast if it's purely CPU bound and mm. all that kind of stuff. But uh, Julia is fast like that all the time. It's sort of awkward. You go to Wikipedia and you look up an algorithm and you program it basically the way the math formula works and it's just 
fast out of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, like, I don't underestimate speed because it, like I said, if it's 10 percent faster, it's one thing, but this can be like 30, 300 times faster. That makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. What's, what is it that speaks against Julia? Because it's, it's sort of there, but it hasn't taken off. And is, is it growing or is it, is it more it's, of- It's definitely growing in niches. So like in, in uh, gene sequencing, in, in, um, in economics, in very number heavy fields is where you see it growing the fastest. And now data science is a, a number heavy field. So if it's better, why isn't it growing faster? Or is, like the Python nerds Python don't- is like 20 years old. Uh, and Julia is a couple years old. Yeah, when, when did it come out? Oh, it's, no, it's maybe more than a couple it's, years. It's, it's like six or seven years old, I think. But exactly. Yeah. No, but it's growing. I think uh, it's like Dvorak. It's gonna, it's gonna <laughs> be big right. one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, and another, another angle on, on languages, or maybe not languages, but using GPUs for visualization. Yeah. Uh, I think you've been playing around a little bit with OmniSci and, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I um, <clears throat> think you should take every advantage you can get. And uh, for visualizations, sure. Uh, GPUs are, um, mm, can be used for a lot of stuff. Um, very hard to use on graphs, unfortunately. But uh, there are a number of graph algorithms where you can solve them um, with matrices. And in those cases, it goes pretty fast, like if you want to solve it numerically. Um, but I, wa- I try to do as much as I can on GPUs just because the things you can run on them run so much faster. Um, and you can really do anything. We were talking with this one company that wanted to say, well, if you can do packet switching faster, then, uh, then we're interested. I'm like, you can do that on a GPU. You just get one of those Mellanox cards. The packets go straight into the GPU and dictionary lookups on GPUs, super fast. You, you can do it. Yeah. So, so let's go here because like from languages now, you like Julia and all that. How does that fit in now with the whole GPU programming or is it different or can you run Julia or how? Okay, so one of the cool things about Julia that separates it from Python is precisely that they've been really thinking about, um, making the language introspective in such a way that it can make really smart decisions about everything. It's very composable. And this is going to tie into something that maybe you want to talk about in a sec about auto differentiation, Mm. but um, you can write Julia code uh, that's pretty abstract so that if, if it implements um, APIs that the communities has agreed on, like a matrix API, uh, the underlying um, compute hardware is, is irrelevant. So really? there you are can f- run it. Yeah. So there are frameworks for machine learning. And one that I like is called Flux, and uh, it uses just standard arrays. And you can run that at XLA on the T- Google TPUs. You can run it on GPUs. Um, AMD's MROC stuff is, is quite flexible. Yeah. Yeah. You can run it on pretty much anything. That's pretty cool. And, mm. and, 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 and one last angle on this. Let's see if I can uh, get it right. No, let's let's leave it. Let's <laughs> so XLA and other techniques like LLVM and stuff that yeah. Julia has. How would you describe it? What does that do? Uh, it's pretty sweet. Uh, OmniSci is a database that runs um, its uh, filtering and aggregation, all that stuff on the GPU. So it's very fast. Either either it works or it doesn't work. Meaning, if the data set fits in the GPU, it's just absurdly fast. And uh, there's this really cool use case where. Uh, you can have Julia code that that you've written, and because OmniSci lives on the GPU and runs LLVM code, and Julia is jitted into LLVM, mm. you can use a little macro called uh, a, uh, a little macro that c- 
converts your code into LLVM code, and then you can put it in as a user-defined function and run it on the GPU together with the database. And what does no. that mean? What does that do? That speed. just means that Is if that you, speed. Yeah, yeah, more more speed, more faster. Everything working together a little bit seamlessly. Um, the the big downside here is that with Python, you, you get these ready-made things that are really nice, uh, and you don't get that with Julia because you know AMD doesn't provide a TensorFlow version for Julia, and and, and you know you don't get all that stuff for free, but. Um, if you're willing to, to invest a little bit in your own packages and that kind of thing, the composability is so powerful um, that you really, you know, if somebody does an innovation in one package, you get all the benefits immediately. And the fact that most of the Julia ecosystem is written in Julia speaks for it quite well. It's like Spark in some way, I guess, which uses Scala in some way. Yeah, and yeah. That it's actually so, using that in itself. And actually, this is a, I think, interesting analogy that uh, would be fun to see what you think about. So, you you are a big fan of doing parallelization in different ways, mm-hmm. and how to work with threads or processes or whatnot. Or free BSD could be another topic right. of discussion if we go there sometime. But you know, I, I started with big data many years ago, like ten years ago or something, and you know. This, the process of turning an algorithm from having it run in sequence in some way in a single CPU to actually run on parallel in many machines is surprisingly hard. Mm. And you have to rethink the whole algorithmic design. And a lot of people didn't understand that big, you know, necessity to actually translate algorithms into a parallelized version. Mm. And I would say, and I would like to hear if you agree, that the same thing applies with GPUs. So yeah. GPUs have these thousands of cores, and instead of a CPU having tens or something, and, and you have to basically have a way to to convert an algorithm to run on GPUs in a fast way. Yeah. And actually, it's a very similar kind of problem. Would it's, you agree? It's the exact same problem, yeah. and it's it's very tricky. Yeah. So I have this fun, one fun story. We bought a uh, an NVIDIA, what are they called? The Jetson, Jetson TX2. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's old. Now they have the newer, cooler ones. But... Um, it has a GPU that's about half, or maybe less, but let's just say it's about half the speed of a 1080, mm. uh, something like that. And um, we wanted to run real-time video object detection using YOLO on it. Mm. And so I implemented... So um, YOLO is a deep learning network for doing object detection, yes, basically. Yes, one pass, multiple object detection on, mm. on an image. And uh, the TX2 is really nice because it takes the video frames and puts them straight into the GPU. And so as long as you're in the GPU, you're in good shape. And, and we had some other challenges like memory allocation and stuff that was a little bit tricky with garbage collection. But one of the challenges was that this, there were these parts in the YOLO um, algorithm that required... Uh, um, so there's this one function in Julia called find first. You give it an array and it'll tell you where the first of a certain object is. So find the first number five, for mm-hmm. example. Um, implementing that on a GPU is not really easy. There's like a not elegant way of implementing that on the GPU. Uh, there are some references for how to do a scan like that, but there's no good way of parallelizing that. And so we were getting pretty good performance right up until that point. And so what we realized was we had to just take the rest of the stuff and run it on the CPU. And mm-hmm. the first part was on the GPU. Right. So yeah, uh, some stuff, um, I don't know, I, I would we would probably have to rethink how YOLO works mm. to get past that part. It's not yeah. It's not easy. But if, do you think it will come a point where Julia or other like Swift or TensorFlow or something or Rust or Go or whatnot kind of mm. language will 
have sufficient intelligence, I guess, could be one term to call these kind of compilers that are becoming increasingly intelligent in some way to actually automatically paralyze algorithms that doesn't require you as a human to I think do that. So, no, I don't think so. Okay. I, I think they will get to a point where they will be able to tell if data structures are embarrassingly parallel and mm -hmm. the operation you're trying to use on them. If like you're doing a typical operation, like, uh, I don't know, if, if you're doing a sort or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and it knows that uh, sort and this data set is parallelizable, it'll do it. It'll mm -hmm. run it on threads or on the GPU. But there are some algorithms that just aren't parallelizable, mm -hmm. that are sequential. For example, crack propagation in, in a rock you can't calculate where the crack at one end is before you've started yeah. the crack. It's a causality or, problem. Isn't right. It? And, and, mm. and so um, some of that stuff you just can't get past. Mm. So uh, going on with the, with the language part here. So moving away from languages, clearly when we talked with, with Call to Me and all that, we talked about putting data and AI in production. Mm. So what is your experience about the, 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 the tooling landscape around where, you know, let's say now Julia and all that. Mm. So how, are, how much are you living in, in the Kubernetes of things and, 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 and all that? Yeah, I think it's very unfortunate that it's gone so fast that it feels like a lot of people have just picked the first best thing they've found to get into production. Deployment so, tools. Like yeah, exactly. Like Jupyter Notebooks. Like Jupyter Notebooks <laughs> are fun, cool things to, to, to program together with your friends at the office because you can both be looking at the same notebook. And even that doesn't work very well. But, you know, it's a neat thing. You're not supposed to deploy a, no a notebook oh. like it's code. You can't even version control notebooks oh. in a good way. Well, you made Databricks very sad. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, people have been working around this. It's like that's the Python way. You just add more stuff to it and more money. So what's your – tell me a little bit about your – reference architecture, how you think around Julia and when you want to deploy it, how, how you, how you just give you an example about containers. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So have you heard of singularity containers? Nope. It's the de facto <laughs> standard for anybody that wants to run a multi-user system and containers. So if you go to any HPC installation, the Lawrence Livermore HPC, all these places, they run singularity containers. Um, what job scheduler would you use when running those containers? Oh, Kubernetes. Kubernetes is not a good job scheduler. You have Mesos, but real people, they run Slurm, SunGrid Engine, that kind of stuff. Well, like we have these really tough tools that are battle proven, that are good. And instead we're using these sort of web developer toys, you know, Flask and that kind of stuff to put our stuff into production. And I think it's uh, well, a missed why opportunity. Why is that? Is that because the AWS community grew up in, in web, web applications and we now you need to get stuck with well, that I enterprise think that, no, tools? No, but, but it works for them. It's, it's not that it's bad tools. No, no, no. It's just that, you know, they've had uh, uh, version control and, and a continuous integration, all these really good tools that work for web development. And then the data scientists, now they're like, okay, we have to actually have like structure to our, to our, uh, to our development process. Let's do what they're doing. And they just take all the tools from that side. And, um, so do you think there's better tools out there that is not really for being sure. used? Yeah. Same thing with storage and all that kind of thing. Like just okay. because Hadoop is good at storage, let's, we got to use Hadoop now. I think you open a bit of a Pandora's box here, but yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> let's uh, go. But speaking about deployment tools, and there are a number of them that are becoming uh, de facto standards. Yeah. Right? Like uh, perhaps not only notebooks, but Kubernetes and these kind of other yeah. auto-scaling kind of tools. And, and then a lot of like scheduling tools and pipeline tools and whatnot. Yeah. 
But you mentioned some HPC tools, and mm-hmm. I think this is an interesting discussion. Um, and I've been recently also thinking or speaking about these kind of differences between HPC, mm-hmm. traditional H- H- HPC, what is, what is high performance computing, high kind performance of tools, computing, it's HPC. kind of big yes, cray computers or whatnot, doing yeah. you know whatever kind of weather simulations or you know, mm-hmm. biological kind of computation or whatnot. Um, and then you have big data, which is the, the Hadoop or today's kind of Spark kind of tools mm-hmm. or Dataflow or whatnot or Flink and these kind of things. And then we have the whole like DPU, GPU kind mm. of uh, land, which is all different. They're like three the different lens, ecosystems. This is like right? three yeah. ecosystems: HPC, big data, GPUs, uh, you machine know. learning, and machine learning. Yeah. yeah, sure. Okay, keep going. And uh, and then you can think, you know, what is really the the future in some way? Uh, will they converge at some point? Are there clear differences in in way of using them? So HPC will continue to move in some way with Slurm mm. and whatnot. Or will basically everything converge even from big data into GPUs and this kind of, yeah. w- w- what's your thinking there? Will it converge or will it continue Good in question. the same kind of? Well, what's what's very clear is the best product is not going to win. So, <laughs> <you're> right? Because <laughs> I, I used to think okay. that uh, uh, FreeBSD was better yeah. than Linux in, in so many ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you add a, a thousand engineers to Linux, then mm. uh, Linux is better. Yeah. Supports more hardware, does all the things you want. And same place for Python, I, I guess. Yeah, same Similar for yeah. Python, Python yeah. more people were using it. Or TensorFlow. Yeah, it's like, uh, should I use Julia and rewrite everything mm. or just use Python and use what everybody else uses and it works and yeah. I know it works. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing for these HPC tools. It's like um, Slurm is a million times better than the scheduler that's in Kubernetes, but... Um, Maybe nobody cares. Maybe it's mm. not useful. I mean, I think it's useful. And it's the same thing with with uh, Singularity, where I can use Singularity on my laptop and it doesn't mess up my file permissions and it works like I would expect it to with, with SC Linux and it works mm. with MPI, it works with GPUs. Uh, but maybe that doesn't matter because my Windows ships with Docker mm. and it's just nice, you know? So I don't know. But I don't think that that really matters for big companies because big companies have one uh, sort of business, uh, um, a core business that their that their revenue centers on, or maybe mm-hmm. a couple of core businesses, and they can afford to specialize. So, so this is an interesting idea. What are you saying here? You're saying that if you have a bigger business with a core thing, pick what is right for you and don't pick the standard. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Yeah. So and basically, if Slurm is the shit for Vattenfall in energy, yeah. go there. I think so. But then you have to also be of the mindset that you can't sort of sleep on these things for five years. No. I, think, own, yeah. I mean, if that's what you want, if you want to buy a data warehouse and then live with it for 30 years, okay, then you shouldn't be buying Cloudera or something like that. You can go with uh, Oracle. But um, mm, Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> Another Mm, continued discussion here. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting discussion. You know, what will happen with HPC in the future? Yeah, yeah. I know the EU Commission is going to invest huge amount of money in that, and you can question if that's the, the right thing to invest in. But still, so that's going w- to happen. What's their What's their bet that it's converging in that direction? I, I don't want to say negative things here. I'm not sufficiently drunk yet, but um, sometimes um, having a nuanced understanding of what techniques that will win in the future and it's not always the best technology that will win as you yeah, said very yeah. nicely i think so uh, wh- robert but anyway thinking about cloud computing which i know is one of your specialties <coughs> as well 
And this is also into deployment tools somehow. Mm. And uh, I, let me start with a question basically saying um, there are different ways to describe why cloud computing is useful. Um, you can say, I, I don't want to manage my own hardware. You know, I yeah. want to focus on the application or the, the service I'm providing. <clears throat> and you can basically outsource or let someone else, like a cloud provider, do that for you. And then you can continue that step or that kind of tech stack saying, I don't mm -hmm. want to manage the operating system either. So let's have containers instead. And yeah. You can continue saying, I don't want to manage the whole scheduling of application. Let's just have cloud functions or something. Yeah, yeah. How, what's your view of the future of cloud computing? Do you think that's the, the proper way to move as a company that wants to really have, like, let's say, the future, the next Spotify in some way? Mm -hmm. uh, do you think cloud computing in that way is the right thing to I just think extract? So, yeah, I think so because um, of, of the efficiencies that, that are in the cloud. There's, there's no way you can run your own data center that efficiently. Mm. That's one thing. And then... You know, the, the thing that I resent a little bit, I suppose, is uh, these these uh, container solutions that I prefer are not the ones that are available as managed services in the cloud. Which if, one is that, by the way? Well, I mean, if I want to run a Singularity, for example, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to have to run uh, Docker with Kubernetes, or okay. I think uh, Azure had Mesos for a while. I don't know if they still have it with their... Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, yeah, Microsoft had a managed DCOS thing. Now that's gone as well. Um yeah, so you sort of have to pick what the cloud has, but I, I think uh, in sometime in the very near future, it's all going to go over to managed functions, uh, and hopefully yep. that's going to make things. And a what lot do you nicer. mean with managed functions? Well, it was funny when I started at Microsoft. Azure was brand new, and the only thing you could do on Azure was run .NET code. Mm. I just thought that was such a cool idea because Microsoft was different than Java. You had five languages and they all compiled to .NET, whereas Java had one language and it compiled to many platforms. But I was thinking then like, okay, cool. Well, no matter what language you program on, you can just throw it in the cloud and it'll run. I mm. like that idea, but then they didn't have virtual machines and Amazon had that and so that everybody wanted virtual machines. But now it's becoming more obvious that nobody wants to actually manage machines and hard drives and all that mm. kind of stuff. And we're going back to the, the sort of abstract compute fabric. Mm. Uh, I like that a lot because uh, I don't care if they are less efficient than me. Uh, so one one message cube software that I really want to uh, give a shout out to is uh, Red Panda. Red Panda is a, a C++ version of Kafka. It's ah. much better. It's like Scylla is a C++ version of Cassandra. Much better. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I love this. I don't know how the message bus this. in Azure is, what, what, mm. what they use in the background, but I don't care because I'm paying for ultimate uptime and uh you know mm. they can run it however they want um because really we we're here for business value right yes and ultimately yes. we're here for then the real code yeah not to manage infrastructure yeah. the whole idea with cloud was to get out of that yeah i get it i, mm -hmm. I think I, I i follow your idea is this the way it's going is that the logical trend now so it, it will be going back to the fabric i i think that's the trend and um I think you really have to, I think when you're a startup, you can for a short while, when nothing is important, when security is not important, when, when uh, the ability to reshuffle your, your, your infrastructure is not important, and when uh, five nines of uptime is not important, go buy a workstation and do it on your workstation. You but it's to get going, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, 
but but pretty quickly as soon as the other stuff is important like for example you you know i want to expand my hard drives you go go buy one at web holland and plug it into your machine you're going to do that or call call one of your vendors and they're like yeah i'll be there in five weeks yeah nobody has time for that yeah, yeah the cost of managing all the infrastructure and the hardware etc is something that i think everyone is underestimating uh, for sure completely so, so the, the, the ultimate like goal in the end, would that be to have like managed Julia functions in the cloud? Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> we've been working really hard now because uh, Microsoft has this thing called the uh, machine learning. Um, they have machine learning. Everything's machine learning studio and yeah. something else. But anyways, like a managed pipeline for machine learning stuff. And you can't run Julia stuff really easily because the way to get a telemetry out and the way to invoke it is via Python. So we have to run Julia and then run PyCall to, to run the Python stuff. <laughs> Not elegant. Yeah, Not elegant. one day they'll get there when Julia is big. Mm-hmm. Cool. That'll mm-hmm. happen right after FreeBSD is big. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mac OS is big, right? So FreeBSD is kind of, even though you, I know it's an Apple thing. So yes, it's a, let's skip that discussion. Let's skip that discussion. <laughs> I love it. Um, That's a, this is this is a cool theme actually, and and it, uh, there is, there is more to explore here, but because I think it's also quite in, okay. So to to wrap up this theme, mm-hmm. so what does this mean in terms of strategy for enterprise? I mean, like if we if we if we boil it down now, so let's say Vattenfall or Scania or someone like that who is now trying and understanding their cloud journey, yeah. how should they think? So if with the knowledge of these trends and with the knowledge of how it really works, you know, should they stay cloud native as far as possible? Should they use embrace open source like hell? What's, what do you think with your knowledge that you think is the pragmatic way to go? Also giving the fact that they are not rocket scientists or computer scientists, right. the whole bunch. I think um, the trend of the cloud is undeniable. So, is, so that, there's no question about that. It's not even, I'm not even sure why people would, Question uh, that at this okay, point. let me challenge that like, question or that yeah. point because I, I agree with you in the functionality and the speed that you can quickly get the service out there deployed properly is undeniable. But the big problem is that we don't have any Swedish or European kind of cloud providers mm-hmm. today, and perhaps there are some other concerns like ethical concerns or legal concerns in being able to use American or Chinese cloud providers. Oh, now we have right. to, then we can take a newsworthy comment into it, the whole shield discussion. Well, you know that you know the whole uh, you're, you you know, are you into it? I'm I'm too busy trying to make the world a better place than to focus <laughs> on politics. Yeah, but it, but it, but all of oh, all that, of a sudden, this, con- in the public sector, it's been a big a big um, big controversy or whatever you want to call it. Did yeah. you hear the philosoph- philosophical kind of statement you just made? That that's actually yeah okay. I missed it. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Well, continue. The the thing is um, about these privacy concerns. Um, I, I can't really speak f- from like a political perspective in terms of the reliability. I, I do know that all the cloud providers, especially Amazon and Microsoft, have gone really above and beyond to try to make sure that they can vouch for, uh, you know, how, how uh, reliable and, and trustworthy their European cloud uh, centers are. Um, I think this is all politics because it's it's naive to think that you can run something more reliable and more secure oh, than but they I, can. I mean, also from 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 a uh, sort of a, a trust uh, perspective, uh, you know, they they have these processes in place where uh, you can go and, and um, 
check out the data centers and, and you know make sure that they are the way they promise that they are like there are these iso processes that they've really gone above and beyond to make sure that they fulfill all the criteria for governments and that kind of thing so it's, it, it's segmenting a bit into something that i would love that we had time for which is you have an american background we have us we have trump we have nsa we have whatnot and um yeah but well, perhaps but, we should but, wait with that discussion but you, you wrap this up then uh, because i think the the, the 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 final part of the whole we, we were going in deep on programming and then expanding mm. on the on 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 all the environment around this and yeah. and the wrap-up conclusion question was how do i think as a normal company what what all, every, all that knowledge what is your advice to a normal company coming into, okay, go cloud and stuff like that. And you're wrapping that up. I, I can only give technical advice. And what I would say is if you're a hospital or something else where you have, or a, a military agency, there are cool techniques like homomorphic encryption and that kind yes. of stuff that you could be using. So I, I feel like we can solve nearly any objection with technology. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love like solving ethical dilemmas with technology. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. instead That's of doing the opposite, which is, you know, regulating away technology, let's try to use technology to technology. actually yeah. solve ethical and legal problems that we have. Yeah. I think that's an awesome kind of comment. That's a, maybe that's the wrap up comment then. Yeah. And let's take the next one. Yeah. And, and we don't have that much time left. So I, I'd like to go a bit more into uh, philosophical topics and, um, and before we go into the art part, but thinking about AI and thinking about, you know, what perhaps Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and other people are saying about AGI, the general type of intelligence that we may have at some point in the future to, to start with, do you have a date? Uh, when, when it's going to happen? It's going to happen. I've, I've been there and I came back. So <laughs> if I were to say it would sort of ruin the, but what I can say is it will happen. Mm. And, uh, and for the opposite reason that I think a lot of people say, it's not that we will discover how to make uh, generally intelligent uh, AI. I think we are dumber than than people think Realize. we are. Yeah. Yes. We're not quite as generally intelligent as people think we are. Uh, we're not very good at statistics. We're, you know, we are good at um, a very specific type of geometry. We're good at uh, calculating parabolas when you throw things right. where they land. Physical law, since I'm yeah, like, just throwing understand. rocks out in the savanna, basically. Yeah, and uh, so we're very non-general purpose compute engines, and uh, but what we are are um, very energy efficient. Mm. You can run on a hamburger for a long time, mm. and 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 you degrade very gracefully. There's this really Degrading nice. What you mean? I mean, Degrading. you know, when you're low on energy, you don't no. shut down. You just okay. sort of become a little bit more dumb, mm. and. Uh, there was this really nice short story that I read recently about these aliens that were traveling the ether in the form of self-aware data on a substrate of a number of, of things. Mm -hmm. And they come to Earth and they find us like ants. And obviously they don't just kick the ant pile. They're like, okay, mm -hmm. what are these guys doing? Let's check them out. And then one of the guys was like, oh, these guys are, are computers. And he's like, yeah, I can see they're moving. And he's like, no, 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 they're made out of meat. The computers are made out of meat. <laughs> and you have to keep it wet for the computer to keep running. And uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what are they doing? Oh, they're just, you know, they're throwing rocks. They're walking around, kissing each other and stuff. These meat mm. computers. Okay, yeah. That's really all we are. And that's the reason why I think AGI is coming very soon. Because pretending you're a human, and I guess this will bridge into philosophy. Mm. To me, pretending you're a human makes you human. 
Oh, uh, once again, pretending you're human makes you yes. So human? so so let's let's say uh, I just walked into this room here, mm. and I'm not sure if you're cyborgs or humans. Mm. And I were to ask you, uh, can you prove to me now that you're a human? And you'd be like, yes, a flower blooms only in the spring. And you'd recite some poetry or something mm. like that. I'm like, easy, GPT-3, right? <laughs> and no. um, ultimately, who am I to question what you are? Mm. I think that, that, you know, I could make it. It's not something that really appeals to me, but I could say, okay, you know, if you're if you're handicapped, are you less human? If mm -hmm. you're, I don't think that your humanness has to do with, you know, a, a list of check boxes that that you know your your meat computer fulfills, and so I feel like a computer could very easily fulfill any number of criteria that make them very lifelike and intelligent and compelling mm -hmm. and. Yeah, I mean, I like what you said that humans are not very general. Actually, it's, it's very uh, in line with what, for example, Jan Lacun thinks. Yeah, and he hates the term general intelligence, and that that's something that you know humans have. Of mm. course, it's not. He says you know human level intelligence is probably a better term to use for, mm -hmm. for what human have, and it, and it's certainly not something to strive for potentially in AI. Yeah. Right? Oh, I agree. Uh, I think uh, we're. People are very preoccupied with trying to make a machine that's exactly like a human. Why mm. would we want to do? I think it's yeah. a it's a fun thing for sure. But obviously, humans are very specialized, and so it's very difficult to make a human that's mm. exactly or a machine that's exactly like a human. Yeah. Yeah, so just pushing you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Let's no, let's comment. I would push him on the date as well because you can either think like uh, Ray Kurzweil, and, and I think he says um, he's very much into this kind of exponential thinking. Mm -hmm. and says twenty twenty nine is the the date for general intelligence, and then you can take the other extreme. I think uh, Mikio Kako says something a hundred years ahead mm -hmm. before we actually have some kind of general intelligence in, similar to humans. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your thinking in that type of range? So there are some uh, computer scientists that have that I like a lot that um, have sort of philosophized about how intelligence comes up as an emergent property, mm. um, and and it really appeals to me that the human brain would be multiple machine learning models sort of competing and collaborating and that kind of thing. And so I don't think we need to come up with one model that is the intelligent model. But rather, you know, the visual uh, model, the ear model, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's going to take a really long time to make an artificial human. Mm -hmm. from, from a robotics point of view, or from a, like a intelligence point of view? From from a from a compellingness point of view, one that 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 uh, can. Um, if we just uh, imagine that we had the perfect Android, and all we had to put, do is put in a brain, or you could yeah. even have a cable, so the brain didn't have to fit. Um, Gluing all those little components together, I think, would be harder than making the component. I almost think we have the components today, in mm. a sense. Like mm. Each separate component. Yes. And the thing about language is a bit of a silly one, because uh, why we're trying to solve language and why it's so difficult. And that's because it's isomorphic to reality. So uh, if we're talking about the, the what's his name, Chomsky and, and the, the language mm. structure thing, language has a structure because... Uh, the thing it describes has a structure. It's it's isomorphic to reality, mm. and if we assume reality has a structure and has has you know one thing affects another thing, mm. um, now maybe there are universes where it's not like that, and in that in those universes languages aren't like that. But um, I think we almost 
almost have the models today to make general intelligence. And, and what's missing oh, is gluing them together in such a way that they mimic a human perfectly. Uh, and I just feel like that's an exercise for people that are really passionate about that specific problem. Mm. Um, but if I were to guess a date. Yes, I've been pushing for a long time now. Can't cop you, up. I, I, I heard, uh, I saw a meme the other day. It, we're closer to 2050 than we are to, nine, to, uh, to 1990. So 2050 mm. can't be that far away. So maybe <laughs> I should push it forward a little bit. I'm going to say 2070, middle, middle of the road. Really? Yeah. Oh, surprising. Yeah, because you think it's going to happen fast, but still, you know, fast is still relative. Yeah, I, I, I think we have solved the, the, the bits. I think it's the, the, glue. the glue that's uh, difficult right now. So what are the, the major differences, you would say, between a human brain and deep learning or AI as it works today? I don't think there's a huge difference. I think uh, human brains are very energy efficient. So, But mm -hmm. if we ignore that part, I think... Uh, this falls back to what we were talking about before, that humans aren't as noteworthy as we make them out to be. They're mm. very easy to fool. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people make fun of that the convolutional networks can be tricked by one pixel. Mm. Um, brains can be very mm. easily tricked into having epileptic seizures if you blink at them the right way. Mm. And, you know, uh, brains are not... We, we can trick brains into doing really dumb things as well. Mm. Uh, so I don't know... The thing that I thought was fun about convolutional networks was that obviously evolution by way of its optimization function, death, uh, has, has made a very energy efficient set of connections in the eyes for processing precisely that structure. Mm. And maybe there are energy efficient ways of doing that in computers, but, but the general principle of taking linear things and turning them into nonlinear mm. Not really more complex than that. So uh, if we take a more concrete example, um, I think it, what you're saying uh, is basically that humans, for one, should not be like over-romanticized in some way. We're not that intelligent that we make ourselves to be or yeah. sound like sometimes. And, and let's take a concrete example. Let's say that we, we have self-driving cars. Um, let's say that we want to make a decision I want to basically go from point A to B in the most cell, uh, yeah, in, in the best way possible. Mm. What do you say? You know, how should we make the decision? Should we have uh, the machine driving the car or the human? Is it simply a matter of statistics saying you know, self-driving cars gets into accidents this often, or is it something else necessary? to handle more like ethical you know, dilemmas that may occur or something. I think humans are very bad at ethics. It's like yeah. we're pretending like we've solved the trolley problem, which we haven't. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if that's like a machine learning issue very mm. much. We're only nervous now because all of a sudden there's more pe machines that are, you know, doing these kinds of things and we still haven't figured it out. Yeah. It's like the question of what, what is a human life worth? We're making those decisions now with Corona and all that kind of thing. Yeah, true. Um, should machines be making those decisions? Yeah. I don't think it really is related to AI. Mm -hmm. I think we should keep developing self-driving cars and all that kind of thing. And um, uh, sooner or later, we're going to get to a point where AI is unequivocally better than humans at driving cars. Yeah. And, and then it won't be an issue anymore. So basically, by you follow evolution, at some point, it's just statistically safer. Don't worry about it. Just do it. I think so. I, I heard one guy that said if if we're going to resent or reject our robot overlords, and he said that we would, I'm not sure, but I, I like the idea. He said that uh, we would see them as our children mm. uh, and we would love them. Yeah. Maybe. 
I, yeah. That doesn't sound weird to me. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Um, and uh, it's almost like, um, I think, you know, being able to build an AI system in some ways is not only terms of engineering. It's also in some way about creativity and I think art as For well. Sure. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and knowing that you are, uh, you know, almost um, um, annoyingly good <laughs> in both these terms, in terms of like digital art and music, um, how you know how, how come your passion to start with for for example digital art and and you have some kind of you have a website right that you can yeah I mean I've, I've, I've put yeah I put up my music and my videos and that kind of thing and yeah. uh, I'm trying to work on something now uh, I think uh, uh, it's a lot of martial artists say this that that yeah. martial arts is the expression of their true self sort right. of they don't have to say anything mm. they just they move and I guess dancers feel the same way yeah. um, I think art is a way to to expose your feelings without uh, any pretense sound. Uh, it, it's, it's a way of, of expressing your, your capabilities, your craft and all that without uh, a facade of rationalism on top. It's just you through the thing you're doing. So, so that's actually connected to, to one of my definitions of art, which is basically work that you don't have any use for. And <laughs> I, I guess you don't like it, but in some way it's not a pretense of you have to build something to use it for that. You mm -hmm. actually do it for other reasons. And sure. then you figure out, you know, what the use potentially is at a later point in time somehow, right? Well, I mean, there is, you can make uh, something that's useful uh, that's also a work of art. But I think um, when you are uh, smithing a sword, uh, smithing, smithing a sword, <laughs> yeah. um, the, the craftsmanship and all of your years of experience are the only thing that show in it. Mm. Uh, and that is the, the artisanship and the art in the thing. And it doesn't have to be put, your, your craftsmanship and your skills don't have to be put into something useful. You can put it into music that no one will ever hear and it'll still be a piece of art, I suppose. Mm. Um, and then somebody might be able to appreciate it. I do think Here's a question that I'm not sure about. Can you make a piece of art and then throw it away and nobody ever sees it? I'm not sure about that one. I think somebody has to see it, even if it's just yourself. What do you mean? Is, is it not art if it's so? If I draw an art in the sand, yeah, and the waves wash it away, yeah, is it not art? I don't think so because I think art is about community. It could be community with just yourself. I think of philosophy very much in the same way. So, how, but we all play guitar at home, or we play, uh, or we paint at home. I guess we don't call ourselves artists, but isn't it art for your own good? For sure. I mean, you for can make a hobby? painting, hang it up and then look at it. And then I guess you are both the creator and the audience. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it needs to both be produced and consumed. Because somehow. you have the community, the definition of art mm -hmm. you had before. Yeah. Say, if you reiterate it, it's yeah. something we come together and define together as a community. Sure. As art. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you can be a very small community that consume oh, wow. your own art. And I think if philosophy is very much the same way because some, uh, you know, you can sit and meditate mm -hmm. and, 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 and. Do you meditate by the way? I don't know if I'd call it meditating, but. Uh, I, I do by the way. I, but, yeah. I think, I think to myself, yes, I guess maybe yeah. that's meditating. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you just give monologues, that's, that's not philosophy and that's not meditating, right? But okay, speaking about art being something defined by the community, would you welcome an AI into that community? Yeah, 
Yes, I I think so. I think uh, people would say it's not it's not art if an AI makes it. Or what if the a, does it AI take away something if it's mm. able to make music? I think AI can make better music than than humans yeah. and, and music that I would listen to. It wouldn't rob me of my enjoyment of writing guitar pieces right. or listening to guitar pieces. Mm. I don't really feel like it takes away anything. What's your art all about? What could you t- explain a little bit about what? you are doing as as an artist what what you've been focused on as a digital artist i have a little bit of a magnum opus that i've been working on for way too long now and what, as, please elaborate as soon as i have uh, a little bit of more time over i'll be finishing it but i have a a book and a piece of music that i've been working on for many years uh and the book is is uh, about philosophy uh, nihilism and uh it has uh, lyrics for the songs that are written in in uh, open and uh, in verse uh usually iambic pentameter sort of like shakespeare and then the music is um a little bit of everything but i guess my favorite part is the the prog metal and the and the jazz stuff so this is an opus that's been going on for a while now yeah how long how long have you been working on it uh probably 10 years <laughs> so 10 years and what was the original idea what's the idea behind you know what got you going and what's the idea here there is some, when are you finished i mean like that's ultimately I'm, i want to be finished like in a year so uh, what, what's the definition of so what's the goal what's the definition of finished there's this thing in in philosophy called the hermeneutic spiral where you can only understand poetry if you already know a whole bunch about it if you know uh if you know uh, it and it came from the bible you can only understand the bible if you understand jewish culture but jewish culture is defined in terms of of the pentateuch and that kind of stuff it's the same thing with poetry you can only understand poetry if you really know everything about shakespeare and these guys but you can only really appreciate shakespeare uh, so it's a bit of a, a you know circular definition yeah. and uh, i feel like it's a bit of, more of a spiral where cuz every time you come back to the other side you're not really where you started you're a little bit higher up or something in, in your plane of understanding. And so I, I in the book I want to do this little journey from um you know if you ask yourself questions like what is mathematics? It starts with philosophy, then it goes to math, then physics, then biology and people and then goes back to philosophy. So that you have like a nice little circle there. So what's the next steps in in the life of art for Robert? Yeah, I'm moving into a new house. I'm going to have a nice studio. I'm hoping to oh, record really? all the music there. Um I'm Is ho- a new album coming up or some new video coming up soon or? Yeah, I'm thinking of making a music video with the company. Oh, uh, nice. And and I think there's a new trend now instead of releasing albums mm-hmm. through record companies, you release singles yeah. and you put them up on Spotify. So I guess that's what's going to happen. I've been holding off on this 2-hour record forever. I think it's better to just release a little bit of snippets here and there. So, and uh, so moving house, uh, I I guess you are building a house has house that journey to build a house yeah it's it's my curse to bear learning all all these new things uh, uh, many people just buy a house or build a house but i i needed to know everything about all of that so um that's so also you took your passion and your nerdiness if i may say yeah did you know you can program houses uh, the there no, there really. there these uh i didn't even know that when normally when you turn a light switch on and off you you break a circuit but in cool houses uh a switch is connected to a bus and it's connected <laughs> yeah. to a computer of course yeah it's a, it's a rabbit Home hole automation. it's <laughs> the way to go yes so you you aiified yes yes <laughs> and what's next in the professional life of robert then yes uh my my uh dream is to uh is to put a, a novel uh ai to good use and uh, i really love this complexity theory and we have some really nice uh, use cases for it in logistics 
I think there are some other smaller scale use cases for it in in healthcare and other places, but uh, we'll sort of see where it lands uh, yeah. most naturally. I think you should publish something about that. I, I haven't heard, I probably missed it, but I haven't seen that much of transformer used for graph networks. So okay, yeah, that, yeah. That could be... I don't know, how do you do you put it on archive? I don't even know how that stuff yeah, works. Yeah, I never got my degree. It's <laughs> <laughs> another so discussion at some point, uh, perhaps. Back to archive, is that a good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, should we end with uh, the, the final question? Um, basically yeah. being, you know, um, wh- who would you like to see on this podcast? Oh, who I would like to see. Um, I think, uh, wow, well, I, I don't know if I should be shouting out names, but... Um, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, I would put them on the spot right now and they have to come here. Uh, let's let's just put it this way. There are a couple of smaller logistics companies that operate mostly in Stockholm, but even in some of the other cities, and their CTOs are all really clever people. They all they all studied at KTH or Chalmers. They're they're good in algorithms and they're connected very much to the profitability of the company. And I so think it's that not that retail companies, really logistic companies, you're thinking about. Yeah, or? yeah, delivering yeah. and packages and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I think I like numbers of it. I like being able to count because uh, it costs to deliver a package. And so being able to say, uh, you know, mm. how much this tech investment actually pays off. I think that's a, a cool position to be in. I have to ask just because you know Amazon is coming probably soon to Sweden as well, and, and you know they have their own logistics and you know extreme use of data and AI. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think will happen to Swedish logistics and retail companies? Um, I, I happen to be privy to some inf- in, inside info with regards to that, and mm. it's looking it doesn't look super good mm. because part of their value proposition in U.S. and other places is same day delivery and that kind of yeah. stuff, and and that's really tough to do. Not mm. a lot of companies can do same day delivery mm. and that kind of thing. Or so, same hour delivery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, I I think uh, Sweden's in for a challenge with, mm. with Amazon coming in. Yeah. Well, I think you have given a lot of really awesome advice here for how we yeah, can in Sweden really and, cool. and Europe start to accelerate. Right, and, uh, Robert 2020? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's it. Well, um, as I expected and as uh, we were hoping, it's uh, been a true pleasure to have you here and uh, wish we had more time uh, to, to speak more about the passion and the philosophy and, and all these right. kind of things as well. Cool. It was super nice being here. Yeah, super cool, Robert. Thanks. Thank you a lot.